This is Dr. Karen Wilson-Starks, and welcome to my podcast series, The Voice of Leadership. beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was on the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. That's Genesis, the first chapter, and the first two verses. So when we think about the light of Christmas, we have to think about the fact that God is the one who originally created any light. And in the beginning, the earth was void and darkness was everywhere. So when we think about light, we think about the presence of God and we think about what God creates. Today and in the next episode, We're doing a part one and part two of The Light of Christmas, and this will be from a biblical perspective. So what I want to note is that when God created that light, he said, let there be light, and there was light, and that is verse three from Genesis one, and he called the light day, and the darkness he called night, and this was the evening and the morning of the first day. Now, not only did God create the light in the midst of this darkness, he also created some lights in the firmament so that we actually had stars in the sky and a greater light for daytime, which was the sun, and a lesser light for night, which was the moon. So again, God was creating lights. And these lights were actually to be used so that man could even understand the time and the movement of the waters and be able to determine seasons and so on. Now, after all of these creations and many more, we find that God also created man. And in the creation of man, I just want to note a couple things about that. In the first chapter still of Genesis, in verse 26, God says, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over the cattle, over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him Male and female, he created them. Then God blessed them and said, Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So I want you to notice that when God created man, man meant both male and female. And if we think about the English version of these words, you have man and woman, and together they equal man. And he gave them both the responsibility to reproduce, to be fruitful and multiply, 
and also to have dominion over everything else on the earth that God had created. Now, that's the beginning. And we want to know if you wanted more information on how he created man, how he created woman, and so on, you would proceed on to the second chapter and get a little bit more information. But later on, we find that the enemy of God comes along to really throw a monkey wrench in all that God had created. Because there was really only one restriction that God gave man and woman, and that was in Genesis 2.15. He told them that they could eat of all of the trees of the garden, all of the herb, herb-bearing plants and so on. However, there was one tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and they were not to eat of it, and that the day they did eat of it, they would surely die. So you could see Genesis 2.15 about that. So Satan, who's the enemy, comes in to tempt the man and the woman to disobey God and to rebel against this plan. Now, something you it's important to know is that some people mistakenly believe that Satan is equal with God, just an evil force. That's really not the case. Satan is actually subordinate to God, was created by God, and originally he was an angel of good. And like us as humans, the angels had their time where they could choose to follow God or not. And Satan, in his case, he chose to rebel, got thrown out of heaven, and now he's trying to disturb God's work on earth with human beings. So he comes and he says to Eve that this fruit on this tree was good for food, it was good for making her wise, and for making her like God. And in addition, he said that when she ate of this fruit, she wouldn't surely die. So Eve being tempted to be like God, and of course, that's exactly what Satan's sin was much earlier in history, she chose to eat of the fruit and also to give some to Adam for him to eat. And as a result of this, we find their eyes are opened in the sense that they recognize that they are naked. Prior to this, the man and his wife, Eve, Adam and Eve, they were naked, but they were not ashamed and it was not a problem. But now that they've eaten this fruit, suddenly nakedness becomes a problem. They're busy sowing fig leaves and trying to cover themselves up. And of course, God comes and talks to them and recognizes right away that they've been disobedient and that they have eaten from this fruit. So lots of consequences ensue because of these choices. And one of the consequences is that the seed of the woman is actually going to be in enmity with the seed of Satan. And it says that Satan was going to bruise the heel of the seed of the woman, but the seed of the woman was going to bruise the head of Satan. And I want you to notice this because bruising the head is far more dangerous than bruising the heel. So ultimately, the seed of the woman is going to triumph. And that is kind of the backstory of the light that God is planning to send in the form of a person. Now, consequences to the earth. Death did come, meaning people eventually died. Even though they didn't die right away, there was aging, 
there was corruption, there was ultimately death. And not only was there physical death, there was spiritual death. And people were suddenly not doing the right thing or following God, but doing whatever they wanted to do. So we see the first murder. Cain, Adam and Eve's son, murders his brother Abel. So that's the first murder. We see that people become so evil with murderings and stealing and disenfranchising one another that finally, by the time we get to Genesis, the sixth chapter and the seventh chapter, God brings a flood and destroys everyone except for Noah and his family. And then we find as we go further in history, people become so evil that periodically from time to time, he has to destroy a whole community. And so later in history, one such group of communities were Sodom and Gomorrah. Those two cities have become so wicked, they had to be destroyed. So in the midst of all of this, at some point, God calls Abram, who we later know as Abraham, when God changed his name. But Abram originally meant exalted father, and Abraham means father of many nations. God made a covenant with Abraham. He had him to leave his home in Ur of the Chaldeans, and then he told him to go to a place that he was going to show him. And ultimately, he made a promise to Abraham that in him and through his seed, all the families of the earth would be blessed. Now, I want you to notice that all the families of the earth would be blessed by the seed of Abraham. So Abraham first had a son by the servant girl, Hagar, who was from Egypt, and that son's name was Ishmael. God blessed Ishmael. However, Ishmael was not the son of promise. Later on in Abraham's life, when his wife Sarah died, he had a concubine wife named Keturah, and he had six sons by her. He blessed all of those six sons while he lived. However, the son of promise was the son he had with his wife, Sarah, and that son's name was Isaac. And Isaac had twin sons, Jacob and Esau, and this promise didn't come through Esau, but came through Jacob. And Jacob's name was ultimately changed to be Israel. And so Israel becomes this conduit through which the light of God is continuing to move and continuing to come. Now, lest we get confused, Deuteronomy 7, around about verses 7 and 8, tells us that God chose Israel not because they were the largest nation or the greatest nation, because in fact, they were the least of nations. However, he chose them because he chose to love them and he was fulfilling a promise to their forefather, which was Abraham. He also says in Deuteronomy 9, around about verses 4 to 6, that he didn't choose them because they were so righteous or so wonderful, but the other nations around them were so evil and so despicable. And so he says, even in your case, Israel, when I was leading you out of Egypt, you rebelled against me in the wilderness and in the desert, and you were a stiff-necked people. However, the Canaanites were even worse, and so God was displacing the Canaanites out of their land, giving Israel their land, and he's preparing the nation of Israel to actually be 
the conduit through which the Messiah would come, and the Messiah would be the light of the world. What I want us to also notice and pay attention to here is there are a number of prophecies about that coming Messiah. And we don't have time to unpack all of them or not even most of them. So I'll just mention a couple of things. The coming Messiah was going to be prophet, priest, and king. And even Moses foreshadowed the conversation about this in Deuteronomy 18, 17 through 19. Now, what's unusual is that in Israel's history, separate people would be prophet, priest, and king. You would not have the same person be prophet, priest, and king, but the coming Messiah was going to be all three in one person. When we look ahead to what was prophesied about that Messiah, we find that this Messiah would come as a child who would be born to the Israelite people. And so Isaiah 9, 6 talks about that. Micah 5, 2 says he would come from Bethlehem, Ephrathah, and Bethlehem is the city of bread, is also the city of David, because the promised Messiah would be a descendant of David. And then we also find in Isaiah 7, verse 14, that God gave the people a sign in their day that a virgin would be with child, and that child would be called Emmanuel, which means God with us. So this Messiah was coming to be the Lamb who would take away the sins of the world. And that's in Isaiah 53, 5 through 7, and also John 1, 29. He would also be a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. And that's in Psalm 110, verses 1 through 6. Initially, he would come as a suffering servant, because unlike previous high priests, he wouldn't bring the blood of bulls, goats, lambs, and animals as the sacrifice to cover over the sin, but his own blood would be used when he would be crucified on the cross. He would be the sin offering for all people. In this sense, he's coming as a one-time sacrifice. Now, in Psalm 2.9, it says, Thou art my son, today I have begotten thee. He was to become a light for all the nations. And we probably want to take a look at what was said about him being a light for all the nations. And so I will draw your attention to Isaiah, the 49th chapter, and we're going to look at a few verses there just to see what was being said about this light that was coming. So Isaiah 49, and we're going to start with verse 3, and it says, And he said to me, You are my servant, O Israel, in whom I will be glorified. Then I said, I have labored in vain. I have spent my strength for nothing and in vain. Yet surely my just reward is with the Lord and my work with my God. And now the Lord says, who formed me from the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him so that Israel is gathered to him. For I shall be glorious in the eyes of the Lord and my God shall be my strength. Indeed, he says, it is too small a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to restore the preserved ones of Israel. I will also give you as a light to the Gentiles that you should be my salvation to the ends of the earth. 
And that's really powerful that this light was coming through the people of Israel, but that all nations would be blessed, both Israel and also the Gentiles. Because God was doing something new. Not only was he going to have his law from an external point of view, but he was going to have his law written on the hearts of his people. Jeremiah 31, 33 talks about that, and Hebrews 10, 16. In addition, circumcision, which was given to the children of Israel as a physical sign, God was now going to be looking for people to be circumcised in heart, ready and prepared to hear what he had to say to them. And Romans 2, 28 through 29 talk about that. So this is the backdrop that this light is coming into the world that God is sending. And we need that light because of disobedience, darkness, and the spiritual sense has descended upon the earth. We have become separated, if you will, from God because of the death and sin in the world. And he has a plan. He's reconciling us all back to him. So next time, we're going to talk about the rest of the story about the light of Christmas and also what are the implications for you in the workplace. So stay tuned and join me on the 26th of December and we'll continue the story. You've been listening to The Voice of Leadership with me, Dr. Karen Wilson-Starks. And I want to give a special thanks to jazz saxophonist Ron McMillan for granting us permission to use his gifted music on our show. Thanks for listening. And remember to go to my website, transleadership.com, for more strategies, insights, and leadership resources.